You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 222, Congress, 1779, Mo Money, Mo Problems. We last looked in on the Continental Congress in episodes 205 and 206, while delegates were still fighting over what to do about the Silas Dean investigation, and the fact that they had no money for any new offensives. In fact, even keeping the army fed and clothed remained an ongoing challenge. Henry Lawrence of South Carolina had given up the president's chair to John Jay of New York. George Washington had traveled to Philadelphia in late December 1778, mostly to convince Congress not to try to invade Quebec again. The army simply did not have the resources for such a campaign. At the end of January 1779, Washington returned to the Continental Winter Camp in New Jersey. In February, Congress celebrated the first anniversary of the French alliance with French minister Conrad Girard. Leaders held a banquet and drank toasts to each other's country. Congress hoped the alliance would turn the tide of the war, but a year into the alliance, there still seemed to be no end in sight for the war. It also wasn't clear exactly what the French were willing to do to help the Continentals. Admiral d'Estaing had come to America with his fleet in early summer 1778. He had avoided landing in Philadelphia in order to face the British fleet in New York. There, the French Navy determined that the waters were too shallow and left New York without a fight. They next moved up to Newport, Rhode Island, where they prepared to assist the Continentals with an attack on the British garrison there. Again, though, the French left without a fight. This time, a storm damaged the fleet, and word of a British relief fleet led Destang to sail for Boston, where he put in for repairs. The French spent the winter in Boston before heading down to the West Indies to fight with the British over some islands. So, in terms of actual assistance, a year into the alliance, the Americans had received only broken promises of support from the French Army and Navy. Congress debated requesting that the French fleet come back to America in early 1779 to assist with the defense of Charleston, South Carolina, and perhaps recapture Savannah, Georgia. Debates on the topic broke down over whether Congress should pay France for the use of the fleet, and if so, how they could come up with the money. While France and America still celebrated their alliance, the costs of the war were still very much a point of contention. The Silas Dean hearings, still unresolved at this point, raised the question about whether the U.S. was already heavily in debt to France for the aid provided early in the war. Commissioner Dean had reported that those crucial supplies were provided on credit, while Commissioner Arthur Lee was telling delegates that they were gifts. 
French minister Girard had met with Congress to make clear that they were loans and that America would have to repay those costs at some point. So it seemed rather presumptuous for Congress to tell France that they were not going to make those payments and that, by the way, could France please send its navy to the Carolinas at its own expense instead of fighting for valuable sugar islands in the West Indies. Even so, delegates tried to see if Girard was open to the idea. Girard made clear that French resources had to be focused on the West Indies and that France was not in a position to lend the use of its navy to America for a different project. In the end, the delegates withdrew their request and hoped that the Continental Army would be able to fight a southern war on its own. Some good news arrived in February 1779 in the form of rumors that Spain was getting ready to join the war. Spain's entry would force Britain to go even deeper into debt and spread its resources even thinner as it contested with another major power for real estate around the world. With the hopeful expectation of word of Spain's entry, Minister Girard tried to get Congress to commit to their terms for ending the war. This led to lots of questions. Would Britain return Georgia and other areas that it still held? Would the Northwest Territory be part of British Canada or the independent United States? What about the Floridas or the navigation of the Mississippi River? Especially with Spain possibly entering the war, those former Spanish colonies became even more of a question. Congress needed to be ready to send a peace delegation to negotiate a treaty and to tell its negotiators what terms were essential to the treaty and which were negotiable. Congress formed a committee to make preliminary recommendations about peace terms. The committee included Samuel Adams of Massachusetts, Gouverneur Morris of New York, John Witherspoon of New Jersey, Meriwether Smith of Virginia, and Thomas Burke of North Carolina. Beyond complete independence, the committee recognized six non-negotiable factors that had to be in any peace treaty. One, it had to set specific boundaries of the United States, which included the area between the coastal states and the Mississippi River. Two, evacuation of British forces from all U.S. territories. Three, full navigation of the Mississippi River to the southernmost point of U.S. territory. Four, free commerce with a port below that territory to provide access to the ocean. Five, fishing rights off the coast of Newfoundland. And six, the cession of Nova Scotia to the U.S. The committee also came up with some negotiable terms, including reparations for harm done by the war and the return of property taken by the British Army, including slaves. Congress spent months debating these terms, even though France was eager to get some decisions as quickly as possible. New England delegates pushed for what proved to be one of the most contentious terms, the right to fish off the coast of Newfoundland. Fishing rights off the coast of a foreign power seemed rather presumptuous and a term that Britain would be unlikely to concede. At the same time, New England leaders argued that they had traditional fishing rights in those waters and that the New England economy depended on their continuation. The debate boiled down to whether the U.S. was willing to continue the war with the ensuing casualties and debts simply to acquire some fishing rights. New England said yes. Other states were not so sure. Southern delegates pushed hard for navigation of the Mississippi River. 
New England did not really want to continue the war over that issue and voted it down. Delegates were particularly concerned that U.S. demands on the Mississippi might risk securing an alliance with Spain, which also claimed control of the river. Because the northern states would not fight for the Mississippi, southern states were not inclined to fight over New England's fishing rights. The debate dragged on over the course of the summer and into September. Finally, Congress settled on terms that included both the navigation of the Mississippi River and fishing rights off Newfoundland. But the debates over the terms divided Congress for most of the year. Congress's real problem, the one that impacted everything else, was its continuing problem with money. Congress had no authority to impose any taxes at all. The only way it could raise money for the war effort, or anything else, was to ask the states for it. If the states didn't pay, there was not much of anything Congress could do except ask again. Congress's inability to tax only compounded a problem which had existed for decades. The British mercantile system pretty much assured that most specie, that is gold and silver, flowed from the colonies to England. There was a constant shortage of hard money in America. Most of the money that did come there came from smugglers doing business with Spanish colonies in America. The Spanish silver dollar, not the British pound, was the currency of choice throughout the Americas, regardless of which European power controlled any given colony. So the colonies had started the war with almost no hard currency, and the Continental Congress had no way to collect what little there was. Governments typically relied on debt to pay for a war. The Continental Congress had no credit history. It had no method for collecting money to pay off any debts it incurred, and there was no guarantee that Congress would even exist in a few years when it came time to pay off those debts. As a result, few lenders were interested. A few countries fronted some money, primarily out of a desire to make Britain suffer through the war, and not necessarily out of any guarantees that the money would ever be repaid. Foreign loans were few and far between. Loans received in Europe were immediately spent there on supplies for the war. The Continental Congress had gotten through the first three years of the war by issuing paper money, the Continental Dollar. Paper currency had no inherent value beyond the holder's trust that the Congress would someday redeem that paper for Spanish silver dollars. I'm going to start throwing around some numbers. It's important to keep in mind that there was a wide range of colonial and other currencies in use in America. The continental dollar was supposed to be pegged to the Spanish silver dollar, one for one. But because it was paper, it was always going to trade at some discount. The amount of discount would vary depending on the recipient's expectation of the chances of ever being able to redeem that paper for silver. A Spanish dollar was roughly the equivalent of one-fourth of a British pound sterling. When we start talking about these numbers, remember that the average colonial unskilled laborer lived on about 30 to 50 pounds per year, or less than 200 Spanish dollars. The king ran all basic functions of the British government on a budget of 800,000 pounds sterling per year, or about $3.2 million. So a dollar went a lot further then than it would today. A Spanish silver dollar in the late 18th century was probably worth very roughly the equivalent of about a thousand U.S. dollars today. 
when you also consider that the entire population of the United States at this time was about one one hundredth of what it is today, that means that any American government debt incurred would essentially be the equivalent of one dollar in the 18th century to about a hundred thousand dollars today. Okay, everybody got that? So Congress began spending rather aggressively at the outset of the war. By 1775, Congress had admitted about $6 million in continental dollars. By quick comparison, again, if Congress spent today about $600 billion, that would be about equivalent in what kind of debt they were taking on. In 1776, it admitted another $19 million, or about three times more than it did in the first year. By 1777, members realized that flooding the economy with all this paper money was causing problems, and emitted only $13 million. Then, in 1778, with inflation taking its toll, and out of a desperation to keep the war going, Congress had nearly doubled the amount of paper dollars on the market, emitting another $64 million. It had about $100 million in paper notes in the economy, and still had no way of paying it back. Even so, in 1779, Congress began emitting even larger amounts of paper, over $100 million in that year alone, bringing the total to about $200 million in debt. Using my quick conversion to modern-day money, we're talking the equivalent of about $20 trillion in today's money. Even for people who believe that the Continentals would eventually win, it's hard to see a way that they might ever be able to pay off this enormous debt. The value of the Continental dollar plummeted. Inflation ran rampant. Congress ordered paper dollars to be accepted at face value, so the cost of everything just rose. In 1776, a bushel of wheat cost 40 shillings. By the spring of 1779, that same bushel cost 150 shillings. As Congress pumped out more of those dollars in 1779, the value plummeted even further, so that by the end of 1779, that same bushel, which had cost 40 shillings in 1776, would cost over a 1,000 shillings. Anyone still fortunate enough to have any gold or silver hoarded it as the only thing that retained its value. The term, not worth a continental dollar, came into use as the money became worthless. A blank piece of paper was worth more than it was after Congress turned that piece into a $1 piece of currency. Piling onto the crisis, the British counterfeited continental dollars and distributed even more of them. By May of 1779, Congress tried to focus on the currency crisis. Members devoted three days each week to that issue alone. Congress attempted to place tax quotas on the states, totaling $60 million in 1779 the states would have to impose heavy taxes on their citizens, then turn over that paper to the Continental Congress for destruction. Hopefully, that would reduce the amount of paper in circulation and restore some of the value of the remaining money. Having decided to dump this burden on the states, Congress then needed to figure out a way to get the states to go along with the plan. States, as I said, could not be forced to pay, and each state inevitably complained that its proportion of the tax burden was too high. The Congress still had not come to any consensus on how to distribute that tax burden fairly among the states. 
Would it be by population? Would that population include slaves? Would it be based on the economies of the local states? There was no agreement, and they couldn't figure it out. Even Congress's president, John Jay, voted against the final bill because of a controversy over whether Vermont was still considered part of New York and therefore part of its tax base. In June, Delegate Richard Henry Lee wrote, The inundation of money appears to have overflowed virtue, and I fear we'll bury the liberty of America in the same grave. Given the state of financial crisis, President Jay finally agreed to draft a letter to be sent to the states along with their tax quotas. Jay appealed to their patriotism and the need to continue the war effort. That would simply be impossible without having a tax plan in place that the states agreed to. In addition to the tax effort, Congress once again appealed to France and Spain for additional loans. It offered generous interest rates and appealed to the friendly nations of Europe to help finance this war against the hated Britain. The primary expense for Congress, of course, was running the war. While many leaders at the outset of the war counted on public-spirited officers to step up and nobly volunteer their lives to the cause, that call had been wearing thin for years. Continental officers had families to feed. Unlike Washington, many of them did not have plantations that continued to function in their absence to support themselves and their wives and children. As the war entered its fifth year in the spring of 1779, many officers had been away from home for much of that time. The paper money they received as pay was increasingly worthless. Officers had already put down several mutinies, or at least grumblings that could turn into mutinies from the soldiers. The army was starving, wearing tatters, and often exposed to the elements. They saw their civilian counterparts going about their business, prospering on farms, and building a future for themselves. In 1778, word of the French alliance had caused some of these hard feelings to subside, but mostly because so many hoped that the alliance would help bring about an end to the war. By 1779, it became clear that the prospect of any end in sight for the war seemed even more elusive. Not only the soldiers, but also the officers themselves had grown increasingly restless. Even if they could put up with the day-to-day sufferings, many realized they were losing the best years of their lives to the war and would be unable to build up any security for their old age. Washington had delivered their request to Congress that officers receive half pay for life in exchange for their continued service, a benefit that British officers enjoyed. Congress did not want to commit to those costs and approved only half pay for seven years following the end of the war. In May, Delegates Gouverneur Morris and William Carmichael renewed the proposal to grant half pay for life, but the committee voted it down. A few weeks later, in June, the Congress received a memorial from the Continental officers indicating that the half pay for life provision had to be passed or the Army might fold. Pennsylvania and Maryland already passed provisions at the state level for their soldiers. A new delegate from Pennsylvania, John Armstrong, had been a general in the Continental Army and had also been a commander of the Pennsylvania State Army before coming to Congress. He was a strong advocate for more military benefits and supported the measure. In late June, he wrote to friends at his surprise about how many delegates opposed pension benefits for the officers who were still suffering in the field to defend them at that very moment. 
the opposition, led by John Dickinson, still called for greater use of the militia and less demand on a professional army that had to be compensated better. Dickinson had recently returned to Congress after leaving shortly after the vote for independence, which he had opposed. In July, the committee finally approved a measure granting officers half pay for life. It then went to the full Congress, where the opposition pushed the matter to the various state governments. The Continental Congress simply did not have the money and had no prospect of ever getting this money to make good on such a promise. The states were the ones who raised the taxes. They should have the obligation of officer pensions. So once again, Congress refused to commit to the idea of providing lifetime pensions for its army officers. With the continuing money problems, Congress looked for someone to blame. Some delegates proclaimed that the army was simply spending too much money. Quartermasters and commissaries were paying too much for the items they purchased. Rather than accepting the reality that these departments had to pay more because of the inflation caused by all the paper money, delegates believed that overspending by these departments was the cause of the inflation. It formed committees to look into the purchasing practices of the army and find new ways to economize. Of course, this had no chance of working. The actions only caused many quartermaster and commissary officers to offer their resignations. Among them was General Nathaniel Green, whom Washington had pressured into taking charge of the Army's quartermaster department. Green had already offered his resignation in the spring, recognizing both the impossibility of equipping an army using worthless paper dollars and also the willingness of Congress to make him the fall guy for any failures. Congress refused the resignations and passed a resolution expressing confidence in those leading the Quartermaster Corps, even while continuing its investigations. Various committees continued to look at the matter, but did nothing really to resolve the problem. The truth is, there was nothing they could do unless Congress had the power to levy taxes. Since the states refused to consider that, the problem would only fester for another year while the leadership struggled to keep officers and men from getting disgusted and simply going home. The money problem was only getting worse, and Congress could not find a solution. We'll leave Congress on the horns of that dilemma, and next week, the British make another push into South Carolina at the Battle of Stono Ferry. This episode is supported by Factor. Let's face it, preparing good and healthy meals is a lot of work. As a result, I often end up eating just junk food. Factor offers a better solution. You can get pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, plus veggie, and more. It's going to be less expensive than takeout, and since it's pre-delivered, it's already home waiting for you when you get there. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed, and you can schedule the number of meals each week that works for you. Best of all, it tastes good and is good for you. As a special deal for our listeners of the American Revolution podcast, you can go to factormeals.com ARP50 and use the code ARP50 to get 50% off. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first order.
Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My continued thanks to Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Kurt Avard. If you can, please go to patreon.com to support this podcast for as little as $2 a month. It really helps me to cover my costs as the podcast has grown. And anyone who contributes at least $10 per month will receive a free magnet containing a different flag from the revolution each and every month. It's my way of saying thank you for making all this possible. Of course, there are other ways to support this podcast. You can buy a t-shirt on TeePublic. Even if you buy things on Amazon, just start your purchase by using a book link from my blog or website. Even if you don't buy that book, I still get a small commission on anything you buy. So it's a great way to support the podcast, even if you can't afford to make a contribution. I also want to remind everyone that the week after I release this podcast, I'm doing a live show in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. It will be on Saturday, October 23rd at noon. If you live in the region, show up at the new Liberty & Co. store at 116 East Broad Street in Quakertown. You can join me live on the podcast and check out all the great revolution-themed items for sale. There are also several restaurants as well as a bar in the building, so you can make a day of it. It should be a great day and a chance to meet up with other American Revolution podcast fans. I had an interesting discussion the other day with a historian. We were discussing the fact that the British never really had a chance to win the war militarily. The army could go anywhere on the continent that it wanted, but as soon as it left, the area would return to patriot control. Even an army double the size of the British at its largest presence in America could not hope to cover the entire continent. The greatest threat to the patriot cause was not the British army, but rather it was the topic of this week's episode. That is, maintaining the will to pay and keep an army in the field and to maintain a Congress that could continue to hold the support of both the army and the people generally through all the deprivations of war. Because the Continental Congress never received the ability to levy taxes, they were floating the entire war on these paper promises of money. And as we saw today, as the piles of paper grew larger, they became more worthless, making it almost impossible to pay for the army. It really is nothing short of amazing that the soldiers put up with these deprivations for as long as they did. The Continental Congress does not come off particularly well in 1779. They could not even agree on terms to end the war. They could not pay their officers and men, and could not even agree to promise them future awards such as pensions. Congress's creation of more and more money led to the hyperinflation, but like good politicians, they looked to blame others for the fiscal mess. As I've said before, when I put out episodes on the Continental Congress, there aren't very many good books on the topic, and I've already recommended the ones that do cover this topic pretty well. So I'm going off topic for this week's book recommendation. There's a new book out about the American Revolution that's being released the same week as this episode. It's called Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Essentially, it's a look at the Revolutionary War based on accounts by private soldiers, 
women, African Americans, and particularly Native Americans. In other words, how the Revolutionary War was experienced by the non-elites. The publisher sent me an advanced proof copy, so the final version may be a little different. My copy was just under 600 pages, not counting notes and index. The book moves chronologically, but jumps around using thousands of different primary sources. The author, Woody Holton, is a professor at the University of South Carolina who specializes in colonial and revolutionary war history. His early works include Unruly Americans and a biography of Abigail Adams. So, if you're looking for something new, take a look at the book, Liberty is Sweet. My online recommendation looks at the monetary policy of the Continental Congress. I put up a link to a PDF document called The Continental Dollar, Initial Design, Ideal Performance, and the Credibility of the Congressional Commitment by Farley Grubb. This paper is a look at the economics of the Continental Dollar and why it was such a disaster. If you look at my blog entry for this episode, you'll actually see a bunch of articles by the same author, Farley Grubb, who is a professor of economics at the University of Delaware. Now, the work is rather academic, in other words, dry, but his articles give a keen insight into the economics of the American Revolution. And from my research, it appears that Professor Grubb is the preeminent expert on this topic. The article was hard to find, so I recommend you use the direct link that I've included on my website or blog. But the article is on eh.net, which is a website devoted to economic history. As I said, the blog also contains a few other articles by the same author on the same topic. So I'd go to blog.amrevpodcast.com, go down to the further reading section at the end of the blog article, and look at the many resources that I've listed there. My question this week asks, did John Adams and Benjamin Franklin really sleep together? And if so, how platonic was or wasn't it? Well, there seems to be an ongoing effort by some people to discover that famous figures from history were actually homosexuals. In some cases, that pursuit is legitimate, but other times, they just seem to latch on to facts without much context, like two men sharing a bed. Maybe in the modern era, this would almost never happen between two grown men of substance outside of a sexual relationship. But the 18th century was, of course, a very different place. Adams and Franklin did share a bed on at least one occasion during a trip in 1776 when they had to stay at a tavern while traveling from Philadelphia to New York to meet with the British peace delegation. Now, there were simply not enough beds available for all visitors, so sharing a bed was the only option. This was really a common problem. There were no hotels capable of handling large numbers of guests during this era, when a large party showed up, there were never enough bedrooms for everyone, so people really had no choice but to double up. Adams later wrote about the incident, sharing an anecdote about a disagreement with Franklin over whether they should leave the window open or not. If there had been any suggestion of a homosexual relationship between the two men, he probably would never have spoken of that night at all. Homosexual activity in the 18th century was a felony punishable by death. There really is zero evidence that Adams or Franklin had any homosexual proclivities. 
Adams was happily married to Abigail for over 50 years until her death in 1818. There's no evidence of any infidelity with anyone of either sex, as far as I know. Franklin was also a married man, but of course was famous for having numerous affairs with women throughout much of his life. Again, though, no evidence of any liaisons with other men. So, I would judge the matter of Adams and Franklin sharing a bed to be completely non-sexual. I would not even describe it as platonic, which implies a non-sexual loving relationship. Adams and Franklin worked together as colleagues. While they shared a common political cause, they did not seem to even really like each other very much on a personal level, let alone love each other. There were several founders who were known to be homosexuals or there is some reason at least to suspect that they had homosexual proclivities, but Adams and Franklin are not among them. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on social media. You can find links for either on my website and blog. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.